Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hard-working people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is a bona fide pleasure to be here with you after having indulged in not one, not two, but three Thanksgiving feasts over the four-day weekend. Y'all, I am bloated. My liver is defiant, but I'm in the best of spirits and truly eager to share this conversation with you. Now, before I do, I should say that I'm grateful to all y'all listeners who reached out to check in about my second dance with COVID. It was real kind of you. I appreciate it. To be honest with you, I was really lucky. Mild symptoms, just a few days away from my work in the classroom. A few quiet days in my flat, no responsibilities, no stress. But yeah, my voice on the last episode sounded even less appealing than usual. But we're good, y'all. We're good. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the DMs. Oh, oh, and hey, uh, thanks for the DM from For a Living patron Silas Hill. I met Silas and his daughter at some hippie concert in Berlin. And he became a listener and then a patron. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, he checks in with me sometimes. He messaged me the other day to tell me that he was in my hometown in Chicago a couple weeks ago. Uh, He went to go see this band called Umphreys McGee at the Riviera Theater. And before the show, he told me, he uh, fueled up at the Brass Heart on Broadway Avenue in Chicago. He said that he had these chicken liver tacos that he said they might have changed my life. Oh, he also said that he had the best tequila sunrise in human history. And uh, first of all, I love me a tequila sunrise. But also, I believe him. It might be the best tequila sunrise in human history because their tasting menu over at the Brass Heart looks insane. But it dawns on me as I (laughs) ramble on here that I actually never got back to Silas uh, to see how the show at the Riviera Theater was. I should probably do that. I'm on it today. I'm going to do it. But hey, Silas, if you're listening, as we slide away from Thanksgiving, best holiday of the year, bar none, Halloween, close second, love me the fall holidays, just know, my friend, Silas, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your patronage of the podcast, for staying in touch, for being a kind fella. And hey, man, send my best to your daughter. She seemed like a cool kid. And as always, all y'all are welcome to reach out. All my contact information is in the show notes. I love hearing from listeners. What can I say? And if you love hearing from me and you want to support what I'm striving for here, if you're able to support independent creators, you, my friends, are cordially invited to head over to patreon.com slash for living and support this project. I'd be thankful if you did. And while I'm giving thanks, I keep on giving thanks. Thanks to Cookies and Carnitas, the sponsor of this season of For a Living. All season long, Cookies and Carnitas has been shouting out their favorite restaurants in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. 
places like the Brass Heart and Bear and Belly and Indie Cafe. But today, I got to say, listen, if you're in the Chicagoland area, you should probably head over to Cookies and Carnitas this year because in 2023, they're changing the place up. They're reopening as a brasserie by CNC, which I think means, don't take my word for this, I'm not entirely sure, no more tacos, no more ice cream sandwiches, best ice cream sandwiches in the world. So head over there, get your paws on their legendary menu before it all changes in January 2023. Now, I've been hoping to get today's guest on the program since 2021, but then I got all wrapped up in a season with educators, and then I got wrapped up in a season with artists, so now is my time. Hugh Williamson is the director of the European and Central Asian Division of Human Rights Watch. Fascinating, right? Critically important work. But is that what we're going to be discussing today? Nope. No, we're not. Human rights is taking a backseat once again because Hugh has long been working on a project that I find endlessly fascinating. He's creating a record, an oral history, a book about worker priests. Do you know what worker priests are, by the way? Be honest. Do you know? I didn't until I met Hugh. Worker priests are ordained ministers who work in secular employment. They bring a Christian spirit, if you will, to precarious jobs. You know, service work, manual labor gigs, factory floors. You know what I'm talking about. Hugh is a kind and clever fella, and his research and thinking about worker priests is really compelling. You'll see what I mean. You're going to figure it out really quickly here. He was deeply invested in this project, in part because he has a deep personal connection to the world of worker priests. You'll see. You'll see. So join me in conversation with Hugh Williamson of Human Rights Watch, not talking about human rights per se. Hugh Williamson, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do for a living and perhaps more to the point of our focus today? What is your passion project? First of all, Daniel, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a, a pleasure to be, to be with you. Thanks. I work on human rights issues. I work um, for an organization called Human Rights Watch, which is a big international human rights organization. I'm based in Berlin. And my focus is managing a team of about 30 people who try to protect human rights and do research on human rights abuses, try to end those abuses in countries in Europe, um, the former Soviet Union and Turkey. So we're pretty busy at the moment, like Russia's in this patch and Ukraine as well. So it's been a particularly busy time. So that's my work. My passion project is something quite different in a way. It's about um, about worker priests. That needs a little bit of unpacking, I guess. If you think of a normal priest in a Christian church, for instance, somebody who you know is a committed Christian and is so committed that they become ordained in the church, that means they have the the rights and the responsibility to take services and lead worship. Most of those people would. Um, end up 
managing a church and a parish, being responsible for a building and for parishioners and so on. The worker priest has a different approach. They, they're not focused on looking after a parish or a church building. They want to do something in society, outside the church, outside the parish, and they want to actually do manual work. They want to be part, so much part of a community that they actually work in an ordinary job alongside ordinary workers. And that's what you would call a worker priest. And that's what I've been working on, following, interviewing people about for the last few years. I'm desperately interested in Genesis stories, and perhaps you can share yours here. How did you become interested in worker priests? The simple answer is my father uh, was a worker priest. Tony Williamson died three years ago in 2019. But for most of his life, he, he was a worker priest. A particularly important period for him was the 30 years that he worked in a car factory. So a, a factory making cars, making parts of cars in an industrial part of the city of Oxford in England. Oxford's well known as a university city, but it has a, uh, many other aspects to the city as well, including a big industrial side. And, you know, the time he was working there in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, there were tens of thousands of people working in the city making cars. The city has one of the oldest car factories in the world. It's been producing cars since the early 20th century. And he worked in one of those factories. His life, his decision to do that sort of work was always with me. And it always sort of, I often wondered to myself, well, why did he do that? What was his, what was his motivation in, in doing that? But it also comes, I think, from my grandfather on my father's side, my father's father, Joseph Williamson, also a priest, Reverend Joseph Williamson. And he, unlike my father, who grew up in a, you know, with, with his parents in a, you know, a, a moderately well-off family, my grandfather grew up in complete poverty. He grew up in the East End of London. His father died in an industrial accident on, in the docks of, of East London when my father was about three. His mother could not read or write. She was completely thrown into poverty by her husband's death. My grandfather was one of eight or nine children. So he, he had an extremely difficult childhood, a loving childhood, but extremely difficult and poor. He started work at the age of 13. He pretended to be 14 and he went to work in building sites. He went to fight in the First World War. Uh, and then and he somehow found a way through determination, through his pugnacious character, to become a priest. And even though he was not a worker priest in the sense of my father was, he had a parish in East London. He was a campaigner. He was a social activist. He was a determined person because East London at the time was a place of a very poor place, a place of migrants, a place of poverty, but also a place of vice. And there were many prostitutes in the area serving, as it were, the, the sailors that came into the docks and the merchant seamen. And he saw the the, the awful lives these women, these prostitutes, lived. And he set up refugees, some, some hostels and some places to go for the prostitutes to, to get out of their life and to find a different life. And that was his social campaign. So I think that, that determination to give something back to society also rubbed off on me. 
And so both of those, I think, personal, very intimate parts of my personal story, I think, influence my interest in this issue of what motivates worker priests in their work. I can also add here that um, this interest in worker priests came towards the end of my father's life. And I really had the feeling of I didn't want to leave it too late to understand what motivated him in choosing this unusual path in his life. I had many friends and relatives who've regretted not talking to their parents more about their lives. You know, our parents are special. I think it's a real opportunity to try to talk to them a little bit before they died about what their what their lives were like. So I, I really made a conscious effort to spend time with my father in the years before he died. Of course, we didn't know when that would be. And we went on a journey together, a sort of road trip around Britain, not all at the same time, but in, in stages. We went to Birmingham, we went to uh, different parts of London, around Oxford, the south of England, and so on. All sorts of interesting places. And based on that, I've been trying to put together a memoir about his life. And in that context, then I've also found time and lucky opportunities to get to know modern worker priests as well. So people these days who are doing this, this work, manual work alongside ordinary workers. So those things have been part of my project for the last few years. Hugh, I'm deeply interested in your project and, and I really appreciate the, the family history that you pursued and, and that part of your family history that you were willing to, to share with me here. Like, like you know, I'm, I'm a history teacher. And in reading some of your work, I, I was thrilled to find <laughs> that, that you likewise have a rather serious interest in history. So maybe I could kindly ask you to situate this phenomenon for us. Like, what's the historical context for the rise and the evolution of the worker priest? The main part of the history really started in the 1940s in France. At that time, um, certain groups of Christians within the Catholic Church were very critical of the, of, of the Catholic Church and the way it operated. I mean, these days, there's lots of criticism very justified criticism of the Catholic Church over awful stories of um, sexual abuse of children, um, refusal to ordain women priests, and so on. Um, in those days, obviously, there were still no women priests, but also the church was seen as essentially elitist. It was seen as part of the establishment and so far away from the ordinary life of ordinary people, you know, particularly in the poorer parts of Paris or in the countryside, you know, that you couldn't believe, just so detached. And, and, and some Christians and priests themselves were very uncomfortable about this, and they thought, we have to do something about this. And based on that motivation, a number of them decided that they would take a radical step and they would not spend their time in churches preaching every on a Sunday and doing, you know, having no real contact with society. They would go and work alongside people in the growing numbers of factories 
and workshops in Paris. And there was born the idea of the worker priest. And it wasn't just that they would somehow be in their nice um, you know, rectory and go there during the day and then come home again to their, in a sense, their middle class lifestyle. They did the whole thing. They lived next door to the workers. They lived in the working class communities. They earned very little. They had no uh, stable income, no stable education for their kids and so on. So they made all these sacrifices to show society and to show their workers that they took these workers seriously. And that was the beginning of the worker priest movement. Then came the Second World War. And during the Second World War, um, as, you, as listeners may know, uh, hundreds of thousands of French workers, French people, were shipped off to Germany as forced laborers. You know, the Nazis occupied parts of France in the Second World War. And Germany, the Nazis, needed extra manual workers to, to staff the factories while German men, mostly, were at the front. So French forced laborers were part of millions of people who, came, who were forced to come to Germany to work in the factories. The Catholic Church was worried about the faith and also the well-being of these French forced laborers in Germany. And then came a sort of a very important episode in the history of worker priests, and that's that the, the, the leadership of the Catholic Church in France decided that they would send some priests to Germany as underground priests, as worker priests, but they would not be declared as such. The, the Nazis would not allow priests to come to Germany to look after these forced laborers. So they basically, they did some training in Paris and they, they took on the jobs of manual workers and they worked as manual workers in industrial plants all across Germany. And there were 26 of them who did this, came by train to, to Germany and, and the documentation that went along with that and the inspiration that arose from this, this episode of people, of priests making, in some cases, the ultimate sacrifice of a commitment to, to support their, their country people in a, in a country at war, really inspired further priests back in France and elsewhere to become worker priests. I dug into this, this history of of worker priests going to Germany a little bit, and I followed the story of a man called Henry Perrin. He wrote his own, he wrote a diary about his experiences in Germany. Henry was a young man, grew up in poor communities in eastern France, and he went and worked in uh, engineering factory in Leipzig. I went to Leipzig, and I went and um, he worked there for several months, and then he was captured. Um, and I went to the prison in Leipzig where he was captured, according to his diary. And I went into the prison cell, where one of the sorts of prison cells where he was detained for several months. And I got an idea of what it would have been like to be in there with other forced laborers and other prisoners who'd been detained for various reasons. Henry was thankfully able to return to France. He was captured for being a priest, but they, were, they let him go. Others were not so lucky, and at least six of the 26 who went to France either died or were killed and murdered in concentration camps in Germany. So they, they suffered a, the ultimate fate, as I say, but they were an inspiration 
for other worker priests. They also inspired my father. My father had the diary of Henry Perrin, and that's how I know of his story, because I found the book on my father's bookshelf. I read his copy, which he'd marked up after he'd read it in the 1950s. And this story inspired a small group of worker priests in Britain to also enter the world of industry and form a group in the late 1950s. There were also groups of worker priests in other countries, Belgium, Switzerland, uh, and elsewhere. So that's a little bit of the history of where this movement comes from. I'm really grateful for that background. Uh, I appreciate you situating the, the historical context for us. Uh, now, Hugh, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't tend to do a lot of research uh, for this podcast, but, but worker priests are, are so new and foreign to me okay. that I felt obliged mostly out of my respect for you, to, to, to brush up just a little bit. <laughs> and in doing so, I found your contribution to the church times where, where you say, and I'm just going to quote you here, the priests I spoke to are often in precarious work, such as insecure manual or service jobs. Mm. They came to their jobs along different paths and have varied approaches to declaring their status as priests but they have a similar sense of mission and they work hard to earn a living. I, I, I want to first ask you here, like what types of jobs do worker priests pursue? That's a good question because uh, it's quite varied. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the headquarters of the worker priest movement in Paris because uh, I wanted to see for myself what that was like and to talk to some of the worker priests who are still currently pursuing this path. The, the elderly nun who was, who was managing the, the worker priest's office there, she took down a, a sort of ledger from her bookshelf and she opened it up and she ran her finger down the, the, the list of worker priests who are still working because many of them are retired, but there's still some who are, who are actively working as worker priests. Um, and I remember there was somebody who works in, in, uh, in an ambulance, so an ambulance staff person who I got to know quite well, actually, in, in various meetings, a very nice man. A cook who works in a school, a farm worker I've also, who I've also met at, uh, on occasion. He, um, he works in a farm in southern France and um, milks cows every day. I think I recall 100 cows he's busy milking twice a day, cleaner, office workers, uh, post office worker, gardener, dishwasher. In Germany, there are worker priests who work in um, distribution centers like, like in Amazon or other places where parcels are packed up and sent off when we do our internet shopping. Uh, and many other professions. My, in my father's era, in the 60s and the 70s, they were mostly working in factories. He had two colleagues who worked down a coal mine. Henry Perrin, by the way, also worked in a mining situation as well for much of his life. Uh, others worked in uh, a chemical factory, um, a textile factory. One was a taxi driver too. So quite varied. But um, in, in their time, they were work, they, they were doing precarious work, my father, because his, his job in a car factory was not guaranteed. He could be laid off one week after the next and lose all his income. These days... The precarious work is indeed also people on short-term contracts, temporary work, so-called zero-hours contracts. Yeah. 
and who um, earn little as well. So. so I'm kind of curious, like how the worker priest experience is, is different for, say, a, a British civil servant uh, in, in like an accounting office than, let's say, an Amazon floor worker or, or a dishwasher. Can you talk a little bit about the, the differentiation of experiences that worker priests have? Sure. I mean, the, the, the idea, the phenomenon of, of professionals like that civil servant being a worker priest is really a, is a very British experience. That doesn't really exist in the other countries. In France, worker priests are a very, very specifically manual workers. And same in, in, in Belgium and in Switzerland and so on. In Britain, there's also priests who've decided, you know, who are maybe success, successful professionals who have decided they're through their Christian commitment, they also want to to be ordained and to take services every every weekend and help help the church in a sense. Some of those people are committed to living out their Christian faith in their workplace and through their work, but some of them just continue their jobs as normal. And then their real focus in their Christianity is is the services at the weekend and looking after the parish and so on, which is perfectly fine. But it's a little bit of a different idea than the core idea of being a worker priest, which is focused on manual work, living in a, in a precarious situation, working alongside people who are you know, vulnerable in society and so on. So I think that's the main the main difference. Now, Hugh... Going from being a priest to a dishwasher or an Amazon floor worker, for instance, it's it's a huge sacrifice. Mm. And it's a sacrifice that leads to a, a substantial loss of social status. It, with that in mind, how would you describe the motivations for people to become worker priests? That's a good question, because it's obviously a, an obvious question people would ask. Why would they do that? Also, because priests, as you say, have a certain social status. And it's, so it seems almost sort of counterintuitive to, to decide to do this. Motivations, I think, also come from personal life. Many worker priests have a working class background, and they, they, they experience that, and they feel that in their sort of upbringing and in their motivation to sort of retain some sort of contact with their own past. The, the, the worker priests I've interviewed have talked about, obviously, Christian values. You know, my father, for him, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself was fundamentally important, that other people are just as valuable as you are. Having an empathy and a, a sort of a spirit, a spiritual sense, and, and promoting that and encouraging that, a sort of brotherly or sisterly working together. And they also talk about a sense of social justice of, you know, society needs to change. And through a small contribution, through a, you know, doing something small, but, you know, significant in the lives of the people you're working with can bring some element of social justice. In terms of the sort of the social status aspect, I recall the interviews I did with a man called Mark, who was a, a worker priest from Belgium who came to Britain and worked in a supermarket, a Tesco supermarket for 12 years. And he was stocking shelves, he was sitting on the till, and so on. And he told me you know, that the priests are seen as being on a pedestal. 
away from society, away from ordinary people. And he, he didn't want that. He wanted to be at the grassroots, on the, on the shop floor, literally. And that's why he did this. He said many of his colleagues, once they found out he was a priest, said, well, why don't you become a manager? You're a clever guy. You've got an education. Why don't you do that? And he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to continue this work because it's sort of, it is, it's what motivates me. And I think it may be, you know, just through the life I'm living and the work I'm doing, it perhaps sort of sends out a sort of a, a signal or a, creates a, a sense of there are people who are working alongside ordinary workers. But I would say I think the significance of it, in a way, is not just relevant for Christians, because there may be, you know, of course, many people listen to the podcast and elsewhere have maybe have different faiths or no faith. And I think the the point about these people in through their work as worker priests are saying, hey, we're all equal. And the manual worker is equal in our eyes as the professional worker. The low paid worker is equal, has the same value, the same standing as the best paid workers. Um, and I think that's a sort of, that's an important message, whether you're a a believer or not and for me that's also the sort of relevance of looking at this movement and making something of it and drawing out the the significance of it you know in thinking about the motivations of worker priests to 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 give up their prestige and their social status to engage in these you know desperately difficult jobs jobs that are they're hard on your body. They're hard on your mind. Yeah. I, I, I was, again, doing just a little bit of research, and I came across an excerpt from a, a book that was published in the late 50s. And the book, which you might have heard of or read, was called Only One Way Left Yeah, by this gentleman called George McLeod. Mm-hmm. I want to read a short passage of it to you and just get your hot take. Okay. You cool with that? Yep, sure, please. He says, I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that's where he died. Mm. And that's what he died about. And that's where churchmen should be. And that's what churchmanship should be about. And it's that should, right, that, that normative statement that I found interesting, of course, bearing in mind, again, the title, Only One Way Left, right? I wonder if you could kind of reflect on this notion offered to us by George McLeod. I think it touches on a lot of what the worker priests were about, the the conscious decision to put themselves in these, you know, difficult, awful situations, the ones just described in that quote. It brings to mind a, a, a memory my father had of another book he read once about a French worker priest who worked on the docks in Marseille in the 50s and the 60s. 
And he really, my father really liked the line or was impressed by the line about when this priest went to spend time with the poorest of the poor in Marseille. And despite being bitterly poor, they offered him a bowl of soup. They offered him to sit down with them and eat and share with them. And and of course, the priest, first of all, said, no, I can't do that. I can't possibly take away what you what you have so little that you have and they said to him um they said don't worry don't worry you know this is not precious food everything in this bowl of soup came from the rubbish tip anyway and we just made it into a nice soup vegetable vegetable rubbish and so please be you know be happy with that be okay with that yeah and he did and he ate it and my father was impressed with that because it really brings home that sense of of wanting to to put themselves in the most vulnerable positions because that is where jesus also wanted to put himself yeah. that's in a very religious way of looking at it but your reading was a religious reading but if we're getting into the theology of it that's what that's really what it what, what it is about that they wanted to 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 identify with or be part of the lives of ordinary people and through that show that there is a a christian way of living which is so which is part of their life and not just in the church on a Sunday. I also recall the conversation I had with Max. Max is a Peruvian worker priest living in Oxford, in fact. He works in cafes. He's a table cleaner, a washer-upper, a coffee maker in cafes, in, in museums in Oxford. And he told me, you know, when I work in the cafe, I'm part of the reality of the coffee shop workers. And they're often foreigners on low incomes, unstable jobs, and so on. But I'm part of the reality, I thought was a really powerful phrase. And that gets a little bit also to what the passage you read was about, I think. Yeah, I mean, what seems interesting to me, desperately so, is that there seems to be a need to do this. As though the worker priests must right, in that passage. It's, it's what it should be. You know, it's the only way left. And I find that motivating and curious. And I think it's something we might end up circling back to. But before we do, I have this question. Sure. Because w- worker priests seem to me to be engaged in a sometimes and somewhat clandestine enterprise. Like they seek to quietly infiltrate the workplace. And I need to know from you, how secretive is all of this? <laughs> That's a really good question, actually, because it's uh, actually the worker priests approach this in very different ways. I remember, you know, there's a, there's a, a woman called Anthea who is a hairdresser in Britain. Um, she runs her own hair salon, but she does a manual work. She's a sort of, Every day she's uh, cutting people's hair and she wears her, her religious clothing, her, her dog collar, as it's called, you know, the white thing around her neck and her, and her shirt in which she can put her dog collar. She's very clearly a priest and she's a priest with a pair of scissors in her hand. <laughs> and for her, there's nothing clandestine about it at all. And she says, she told me that she has 
a hundred times more conversations about faith and the connection between faith and ordinary life and what faith ordinary people have in her hair salon than she does in in church. She also <laughs> takes services. So she's much more rooted there, but but she's very open. On the other hand, there's a friend of mine who works in Amazon. I don't want to talk about who that is. I'm going to think it's best if I give him a, a pseudonym. Let's call him Joachim. Joachim works in Amazon in Germany somewhere. I've talked with him a lot about his work, but he's completely secretive about being a worker priest. The management doesn't know, other workers don't know, because they he worries that he may lose his job if he um, if he if it becomes public and so on. So, but he you know gets up every day, is starts his shift at six o'clock in the morning every day, gets his tracker and and, and starts tracking parcels and making sure they're going to the right destinations and so on. So for him, it is a a bit clandestine, but nevertheless, for him, it's also just just carrying out his his work as best he can. For my father, he worked for two years without it generally being widely known before he was a worker priest. Um, when, when he started, only the human resources, the personnel manager knew, and nobody else did. Of course, people asked and worried about, wondered about him. He was a guy who'd been to university in Oxford, you know, and most nobody else in the factory had been to uni- or at least on the sh- on the on the shop floor had so people had asked and he would tell them what his background was if they asked but then when he was ordained the local newspaper did a huge article about him <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the national news the national press wrote articles about him as well the times and the guardian and the telegraph all wrote articles about this this worker priest on the shop floor in this famous car factory um, but there's another side to the clandestine work, and that's the rebellious side to it as well, because many of them are also trade union activists. At the same time, they take it the next step and say, our job's not only to to be alongside workers, but also to, if necessary, to represent them and to help organize them or to at least contribute in that way. And my father was a trade union leader in his car factory for 20 years and um, was involved in leading strikes and protests and so on. And many of the worker priests I've talked to recently as well have also involved in workers' councils in Germany or in Switzerland and so on. And they see that as part of their what their motivation is to help workers you know, have as best working conditions as possible. You know, I've come to understand that not only was there rebellion among worker priests for social justice, as you describe it, Mm. but it also seems that there was a a rebellion against the heart and the head of the so-called firm. Mm. And and I wanted to read an excerpt to you from a, a 1954 letter from the Vatican. Perhaps you've seen this letter. And And incidentally... Uh, this I, I, sh- I should I should tell you this is the first letter from the Vatican that will have been read on this podcast. Though, though, though <laughs> surely not the least. Um, so I'm I'm going to read this to you, and again I want to okay. I want to get your hot take. It's a few sentences. The Holy See holds that it is not essential to the apostolate 
in the work of milieu to send priests as workers there, and that it is not possible to sacrifice the handed-down view of priesthood for this purpose. The priest is ordained essentially for the practice of sacral functions, to offer God the Holy Eucharist and the public prayer of the church, to minister the sacraments to the faithful, and to preach the word of God. He gives his testimony above all by preaching the word and not by manual working among factory hands as if they were his peers. What is more, the Holy See holds that working in a factory or on a building site is incompatible with the priestly life and its obligations. Mm. Hugh, incompatible. Worker priests are, are defying the letter and the spirit of this letter. And I'm curious about the, the tone and the content of this rebellion, which you refer to. Can you talk a little bit more about, about worker priests as rebels? Sure. And that was, that was from 1954, I think, wasn't it? And that was the, the point at which the French worker priest movement, as I described earlier, was at a pinnacle and then was effectively, you know, shut down by or by the Vatican, or at least the Vatican tried to shut it down because it did so this rebelliousness, this challenge that it posed to the to the to the established religious order in France was so strong that the Vatican said we can have this no more. That priests have to decide are they going to be workers, in which case they can no longer be priests, or they have to give up their work or give up most of their work and return to their parishes and their Sunday services and so on. And that was a, a, a decision that came down. And in fact, most of the worker priests um, in France, um, as you might expect from what we've been talking about, um, <laughs> did not accept the Vatican's rule. They basically said, you know, no way. We are going to continue. Our commitment is to our workers, colleagues, not to the church. And they decided to stop being priests in this way, and they decided to continue their work in factories. Just as a side note, the, the ultimately tragic story of Henry Parin also ends in, in this period, just a few months after the Vatican made this decision. He decided to leave the priesthood. He wrote a letter to decide to give up his, his ordination. Uh, nobody quite knows what happened, but he was carrying this letter around with him for two weeks. And then a tragedy happened and he had a motorbike accident mm. and he died. And he was only 40 years old oh. and he lived a very full life, but he had a, he died in a motorbike accident. It's not quite clear what happened, but um, at, this, at this point, and it obviously it was connected to in some way, you know, his, the, the, the emotional turmoil he was in was, was important to him at that time. That's clear from his letters. So, but nevertheless, the, the, the spark had been lit. The genie was out of the bottle and the, the, the Vatican was unable to control this rebellion. In fact, a decade later, the Vatican made a, a, basically reversed its decision and said, we recognize there is some value in, in worker priests and we will enable them to, to be ordained and to 
work in this way. And several of the worker priests I talked to, including Joachim in Germany, are Catholic priests, you know. So in the modern day, the church is sort of makes makes the appropriate sorts of noises about worker priests. I, <laughs> I, I talked to the Church of England a little bit about it, and they said, oh, you know, of course it's important that there are priests who do this sort of work. We need priests who engage with society, as they put it, from Monday to Saturday and not just on Sunday. And that's the official yeah. position, you know, and that's yeah. understandable. They do need that, but but it's not very encouraging or not. They're not that they that they've not taken the steps which really encourage this movement. It's still a very bureaucratic, very uh, a church which is very focused on church buildings, on parishes, and so on. So yeah, but yeah, but in some ways the rebellion continues. Yeah, we, we wouldn't want to say that the church is ag- agnostic on the matter. That would be inappropriate. Yes. But I, I do <laughs> I, I do also sort of tongue-in-cheek mm. have a question for you, which I, I might have to ask for your forgiveness in advance for it, because okay. it strikes me that worker priests who at the core of their their mission, if I may, their work, if I must, is this rebellion and it's a rebellion against sometimes the state and unfettered capitalism right rebellions for workers rights Mm. there's this rebellion against the established church Mm. there's this social justice component at the core of it and it makes me wonder when we keep in mind social justice and rebellion being at the nucleus of what they do it makes me wonder if they would make particularly good priests in the traditional sense, right? Like my understanding of the church, which admittedly is very limited, is that it is very hierarchical and there is a need to take orders mm. and to to follow the script. Do you have a sense from talking to all of these worker priests and reading about others from other generations as to whether or not they were cut from the cloth that would be required to succeed in the church as we understand it? I think some of them would have been wonderful priests, in fact. I mean, there are part of their message was actually not to, in a sense, criticize other people who decide to be priests it was to sort of go off on a different path and set an example and 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 start start a debate it wasn't to say everybody should do this Uh, if you think of my grandfather you know he was an ordinary priest but he was also a campaigner for social justice that did a lot of good things outside the church my father organized something, for instance, something called Industrial Sunday in his churches, in his church. He took regular services. And on Industrial Sunday, he celebrated the manual work of his worker, the workers he worked with in his car factory around the corner from his church. And the manual workers came and processed up up the aisle with their produce of their work. So part of an engine one year they drove a whole car into the into the <laughs> church seriously yes and they had you know other industrial produce which they brought and and, and placed at the altar 
you know, so a sort of industrial version of the harvest festival. So there are ways, there were ways and there are ways to express their faith, even in this sort of religious context. I think of Joachim as well, and who's who preaches on the street sometimes. And, you know, as you know, in Germany, there were there's been awful neo-Nazi violence and killings in recent years. And and he he led a service, you know, because in his town there was a victim of a neo-Nazi attack and, and he he led a memorial service on the street uh, while wearing his, his jacket from his work, but nevertheless leading a religious service. So the, the, the boundaries are sometimes blurred, I think, for the worker priests. But then, of course, there are also a progressive, campaigning, ordinary priests as well. So I think, I think one can't come to the conclusion they would not have been very good priests, but one can come to the conclusion that they, there was something about them which turned them off from being ordinary priests and they are motivated to do something else or something different as well. That's fair, man. I hope again. I hope. I hope you don't mind the question. I'm sure they could have been question. perfectly suitable. I just I, when I when I envision them and as I you know hear about their stories, I just just as my imagination running wild here. I would just imagine being part of the established church to be to be difficult for them. But I I take your word for it. I'm sure you're right, and you were probably right in this article that you wrote that I want to ask you a question about. Mm. Uh, you, you cited Prebendary John Lees, the Church of England's national officer oh, yeah. mm-hmm. for self-supporting ordained ministers. And he said that MSEs, and, and for our listeners, MSEs are ministers in secular employment, just worker priests, as we've been calling them. Mm. MSEs are not usually about workplace ministry, but about the presence shown by ordained ministers in the workplace. Yeah, it seems like a fine line. Mm. Yeah, Can you kind of highlight this for me, highlight the line? Sure, because that's also a question I often get when I explain to people about what my father did. People often say, ah, he's a missionary, is he? Basically, he's, he's going into the factory in order to try to convert people to Christianity or at least get them to come to church on a Sunday, you know? Yeah. And that was not his purpose at all. That was not his purpose to to boost church numbers, which are ever dwindling, or to nevertheless necessarily convert people. His mission was, was a different one, which was to express Christian faith in a way just through his actions, through working, driving a forklift, doing other industrial jobs around the factory. I mean, there are there are workplace chaplains whose job is also not necessarily to convert people, but nevertheless to represent the church in workplace settings and who are not manual workers, but they, they are employed by the church and everybody knows they are a priest. And they play an important role as well. You might be familiar with those in hospitals. They're often workplace chaplains in hospitals, often in prisons as well. They play a really important role there. So I think that's the distinction in a sense. And I, and I recall one of the people who I interviewed, uh, a guy called Gerald, was both, in fact. He, he a really impressive guy, came from the north of England, working class background, lived near London now with his wife and kids. 
and he he works as a carer, a very basic, very important but very difficult job, visiting people in their homes who need to be cared for, who need to be washed and dressed, cared for, cooked for, shopped for, and so on. A, a very demanding, low-paid job. And that's not about being a missionary. That's about living out his faith in a simple way. But also, he has a part-time job being a hospital chaplain as well. Mm. And that's also a difficult job because it's, you know, as he said, as he told me, I'm often the person that relatives turn to when they because they can't turn to them to other relatives because it's too difficult and they turn to me and they unload their stresses their emotions onto me and I have to bear that and that's okay because that's my job but there's different challenges different aspects of the work but they they are they they're quite different in fact Yeah I I imagine so you know, it seems to me that worker priests, uh, as I think one of your interviews said, it might have even been Gerald, I'm, I'm not sure, they, they seek to serve as a, a quote-unquote Christian spirit in a secular environment. Mm. And having considered the lives of these worker priests carefully, what do you think this means? Like to be a Christian spirit in a secular environment? I think it means to represent those, or to live out, better than represent, to live out those values I, I mentioned earlier. Love thy neighbour like yourself. Believe in empathy and believe in social justice and just simply living those out and, and doing so day in, day out. Not drawing attention to yourself, not trying to get on with the career moves, simply, in a sense, finding your fulfillment in that ordinary work. And if you then touch people in a way, they would value to, to know that, that they have touched people. I think of the example of Mark, the, the Belgian worker priest who worked in the supermarket in Britain. And... Um, when it became known that he was a worker priest, a particularly friendly but rather gruff, coarse, you could say, colleague who worked in the canteen confronted him and said, well, you are, what are you, are you a priest? She's a Catholic person herself. You are a priest? What on earth do we make of that? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> confronted him about that. And then and he sort of, you know, he, he admitted it to her and say, and, and, and she she apologized to him then for for, for swearing right. too much in his presence yeah. and and he said to her you know well if if you if you swear other times then you should certainly swear in my presence too and i actually called her up i talked i talked to pauline i called her up and asked her what what she really thought of 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 mark having been a priest and being a shop worker in tesco's with her all of this time and what she told me is that he's the sort of person, the sort of Christian, the sort of priest we need in society. He's the sort of modern priest, as she put it, that we need. So I think that sort of little bit of, you know, is also not what they're looking for, but I think they would appreciate it. You know, it's appreciated. They've made a little bit of a difference to the life of an ordinary person. In my father's case, I went with him as part of my road trip with him back to the factory where he worked 
is now a factory in, in Oxford that makes the Mini, the British car now made by BMW, yeah. famous car around the world. Yeah. Um, and we went on a tour. Of course, it was completely disorienting for him. There's so many robots and technology in the factory. He was disoriented. Yeah. But he enjoyed it. But when we came back, when we came out of it, the tour guides were getting together because they'd heard that my father was in the factory going on this tour. And they gathered around him and they asked him, how are you doing, Tony? How are you? What's, you know, what are you doing these days? And one of the tour guides introduced Tony, my father, to one of the other ones who didn't know him. And he said, you should meet Tony here. He's a legend in this factory. And that touched him, I think. Um, of course, he joked it off. But nevertheless, um, I think having lived that Christian spirit for 30 years in that factory, he had touched a few lives. And that that's important, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I, You know, I know you spoke with a, a great many worker priests, and, and one of them said something that I, I keep on coming back to. Right. And I, I want to get your take. They said, it's true. I, I'm not a quote-unquote worker. But, but I work. I'm there. What, what does this mean to you? This, this idea that this person refuses to call themselves a worker, but, but they work and they go to work every day. Help me navigate this a little bit. I guess I'm asking you to maybe give me further insight into to the identity or the identities of the worker priest. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because they come from very varied backgrounds. Um, as I said, you know, Mark the Tesco's worker is from a is a from a very working class background. Joachim grew up in a in a traditional Catholic household, middle class household of of teachers. His parents. He he played the the organ in church. Uh, Anthea, the hairdresser is um from a from a uh, her, her father was also a hairdresser so also a sort of uh, history in small business and so it's a quite varied in a way um can i ask if you think that joachim identifies as a worker it's interesting he uh he 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 does not identify as a worker he he says I can't. I, I can't. Be, I can't see myself as the part of the working class because that's not how I grew up. He does not identify in that way, but he identifies through that daily work, that that going to work, that working um, as part of the workforce. I mean, he he works alongside, you know, people from many countries, from the United Nations of of you know, of an Amazon factory, as he calls it. But he. He he can't classify himself as a as a, as a worker because of the, because he does not have the, the roots in that in that community. Yeah, maybe I should add as well that um, this was actually a, a, an an important nugget of the debates that took place by my father with the other worker priests when they gathered together. They met every year um, and had an annual meeting, and they often tussled with this idea about their identity. This really, this is what it's about, isn't it? About the identity they shared or the extent to which they could identify with 
the workers in their workplaces. And some of them felt they could really identify with them. Others felt that that's not really possible because they were not workers, but nevertheless, they could play a role, you know, just working in those workplaces and, and making a sort of practical contribution. That was more my father. My father was a pragmatist. He wanted to just do whatever he could to live out this Christian life, but also to be a trade unionist. He was a politician as well, and so on. So, you know, they tussled with identity. And by the way, they also tussled with their identity and how it impacted their families as well. I mean, the the women in the group, my mother was also a member, and she, with other women, tussled about the idea of what impact they're having on the children through this identity and whether it was fair for the children to be growing up in these working-class communities, not going to the best schools in town, not having all the fanciest toys, and so on, huh. through this work as, of a worker priest. And, you know, and were they depriving their children of, of something by doing this? They came to the conclusion that they were not, that they were offering them something special and different through this opportunity, even though they were not offering their kids a middle-class lifestyle. So this question of identifying and who, who exactly they were was ran through the whole history and continues to run through the history of, of worker priests. I mean, Hugh, just think about where you could be now if it wasn't for this decision. That your parents, you, you, <laughs> exactly. you could have been the next prime minister. I hear you all go through them every couple of weeks. You could be next in line. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> what opportunities I've missed out. Exactly, exactly, Daniel. Yes. Surely. Hey, man, I have like... <laughs> What I'm afraid is just almost too big of a question for you, but it's really the question that I perhaps am most interested in. Okay. You've been reflecting on your family's history and you've been engaging wholeheartedly and in a very earnest way, it seems to me, with worker priests uh, around Europe and in the UK. And in exploring worker priests, I wonder what you've learned about the relationship between work and faith. Now, that is a big question. Um, my answer is that there are some people in the Christian faith, perhaps in other faiths as well, who see the, the centrality of, of work in society. And this is an important point on this podcast, because your podcast is about work, isn't it? So... There are people who see the centrality of work in our society, who see that we invest so much time and energy in working in our lives, and it should be understood better, should be recognized, and should be given. Everybody who works should be given recognition and respect, whether they're the poorest or the best paid, manual or professional, or whatever. And I think for me, this the connection I have gathered through my work is that there are people who see that the church, that the people of faith need to pay more attention to this issue. Of course, there are others doing that. There are trade unions, there are activists, there are many others who see that we need to change the way we understand the position of work in society. But at least there are some people in the church who take it seriously, who've recognized it 
and want it to be more central to the church and not just that it's mentioned in passing in in church services on Sundays, but also Monday through Friday, that people of faith see this as a, an important area where they can make a contribution. And I think that's for me is the, the real connecting point between faith and work. Yeah, and it does seem from the stories that you've shared in your writing and with me on the podcast here, that there's some critically important work being done by these worker priests in, in, in giving their, their colleagues a, a language in some cases, a voice in other cases, a space in many cases mm. to re reflect on what they do and why they do it. And perhaps in other cases, just to be there, just to share space and to bring as we said, that quote-unquote Christian spirit into that secular environment. And I got to say, Hugh, I, I think that the, the way you talk about work with these worker priests is really inspiring to me. I actually really like the language that you're creating and the explorations that you're taking. And I'm so grateful that you shared just some of that with me today. And, and that should be enough, but being a perpetual ingrate as I am, I, I hope I could ask you to do what I ask all of my guests to do, which is to help me drive this train into the station by sharing two stories. Uh, first, I would want you to share a story of a professional triumph and then a professional failure. Now, of course, in this podcast, we didn't talk about your work per se, uh, which is something I hope to do with you, actually. Um, but I will open the floor to you, whatever you want to talk about. I'm interested in stories of triumph and failure. Can you give me a failure followed by a triumph? Sure. Okay. Um, it's good questions. I like, I like these questions that you round off the podcast with. Thanks, man. The the failure um, is actually to do with my work on, on worker priests. And it's a simple but important one for me that it, for me, it was a failure not to have had the conversations with my mother that I had with my father before she died. This was not just about digging into what worker priests do. It was also understanding my own family history and my own history better. And I did that as much as I could with my father but I didn't do it with my mother. My mother had a stroke a few years before she died, and I should have been more conscientious about making sure I talked with her as well when, when she was in a position to do so. Barbara Williamson was a wonderful woman, a very clever woman. My father always said she was much cleverer than, my, than, than he was, <laughs> and so on. So I, I missed the opportunity to have sat down, maybe gone on a journey with her as well. So I regret that. Yeah. Sorry, man. That's okay. In terms of a professional triumph, um, I would actually go back to something to do with my day-to-day my -day work, working for Human Rights Watch. I recall my encounter with a man called Mohamed Bakjanov. Mohamed Bakjanov is a, is a journalist from Uzbekistan, a country in Central Asia. Maybe your listeners are familiar with, maybe not. I think a, you have a connection with Uzbekistan as well, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I lived there for a hot minute. Yeah, um, It's a beautiful country. 
It's on the Silk Road, but it has a terrible, terrible human rights record. Torture, lots of political prisoners, and so on. Human Rights Watch has been working on the country. That means we've been doing reports, we've been gathering evidence, we've been lobbying the government to change their human rights record for decades. A few years ago, there was a new president came to power. The old president, the old dictator died and a new president came to power. He decided he needed more foreign investment, he needed a more attractive image globally. So he decided to to, um, do something about their terrible human rights record and he released some political prisoners, um, including Mohamed Bakchanov, who'd been thrown in prison 18 years earlier one eight, 18 years he spent in prison just for being a regular journalist in Uzbekistan. Hmm. Um, and we included him in many of our reports. We campaigned for the release of Mohammed Bakjanov many times. And um, a few years ago, I got the chance to go to Uzbekistan and to travel across the country to a very remote corner of the country. And I met him. And it was a humbling experience to meet the man who we made a, a tiny contribution to help him get out of prison, I would say, because our campaigns were pretty high profile with the government. And we sat around, had a very simple meal, sat around the low tables you have in Uzbekistan. You sit down and you, you eat together. And we ate with him and his family. Yeah. And it was, as I said, a humbling experience to meet him and to, to realize he was not a broken man. He was a man still of strength who, despite being locked up for so many years and tortured, came out and had a strong spirit. So I see that as a triumph for him, for the human rights movement in Uzbekistan, but a little bit as well for, for the work I've contributed to over the years on Uzbekistan. Now that, sir, is bona fide triumph. Thank you. Triumph of epic proportions, I might add. I have one more ask, if I may be so bold. I'm hoping you might be so kind as to recommend to our listeners something that that illustrates or somehow influences your your thinking, your work. Could be anything, a book, a song, a film, flower, anything. One last share with our listeners. Okay, that's a good idea. Um, hmm. Actually, two things come to mind, if you don't mind, very quickly. Two things come to mind, and they're related because they're both about work, um, which is the theme of your podcast and the theme of what I've been talking about. One, of course, is, for me, of course, is is the, the, the iconic book about work, which I have on my bookshelf. The, this guy, as you know, Studs Terkel, he wrote his book in 1974 about working people and about what the, the jobs they did, the ordinary jobs they did. And that's an inspirational book because it's really touches on and brings to life the ordinary work of ordinary people. And um, it inspired me and it's inspired other people to, to, un- to try to unpack and understand this, this genre and this area of, of society. So I would recommend that book strongly. Uh, Hugh, you know you're making my heart flutter now, <laughs> right? Like you, of course, this podcast was initially named Studs after Lewis Studs Turkle, and the fact that it's sitting on your bookshelf, I'm feeling very deeply connected to you right now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glowing. I'm glowing, sir. <laughs> but you asked for a second, and I can hardly say no now. The second one, I'll be very quick. <laughs> um, uh, is a movie actually a much more recent movie called Sorry We Missed You which is a Ken Loach movie from 2019. Ken Loach, the the radical British 
filmmaker. And he made a film about the sort of things we've been talking about tonight, about people working in unstable jobs. The main character is a guy who um, needs more work and he takes on the job of being a guy who delivers Amazon-type parcels around his city. And the the way he takes that on, he disrupts his family life and his kids and I won't tell the whole story, but it's basically his life starts to fall apart because of this decision to take on this precarious work. It's a good movie, but it also shows a, throws a light on the, the vulnerable nature of the sort of people who have to do this sort of work. So sorry we missed you. Hope you can watch it sometime soon. All right. Well, I will link our listeners to Sorry We Missed You. But Hugh, I'm so glad that we have had you. This has been such a pleasure for me. I learned a ton in this conversation. Now, I will say that we didn't have the opportunity in our time together to get into your human rights work. But I've had so much fun speaking with you. I enjoy you tremendously. Is there a chance that maybe one day, whenever it feels right, perhaps to line up with the release of your book, which will surely come out sooner than later, that I might be able to get you on the podcast to talk about your critically important work in human rights as well? Would you be, would you be so kind? Was this experience talking to me okay enough that I might be able to sucker you back on the podcast whenever the time is right for you? Mm, I'll think hard about it, Daniel, but I, <laughs> I think it, uh, I'll be there. When you, if you call me up, I'll come onto the podcast again and talk about my work on human rights. No problem at all. I look forward to it. I keep winning. Thank you so much for being here. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Hugh Williamson of Human Rights Watch, not talking about human rights, but he and I are both, I think, equally persuaded that he should come back on the podcast to talk about his critically important work on human rights. All right, so follow For a Living wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if For a Living means something to you, and you've got the means to give a few, please head over to patreon.com slash for a living. I'd be grateful if you did. Next week, Alex Skinner, a policy advisor for the German Environmental Ministry, will be here. And then it's going to be Christmas, and then it's going to be New Year's, and then we'll all be back together here in 2023. Listen, y'all, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you have a lot to be thankful for. I'll catch you in two weeks, and until then, gobble gobble, jive turkeys.